Welcome to another episode of 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This one by author Louisa May Alcott, who many recognize as the author of the popular novel Little Women, which brought great financial success to Miss Alcott after years of writing hundreds of great sketches and stories. Born in 1832 in Germantown, PA, she was among the first of the great female American writers and known for her characterization, imagery, and stories, many of which were based upon her personal experiences. In 1862, she left her then home in Concord, New Hampshire, to head for Washington, D.C., to serve as a Civil War nurse. Her experience as a nurse led her to write a number of compelling short stories, one of which is My Red Cap. We recommend her stories and books to all ages and all tastes, and especially to young men and women who seek to learn the art of writing by reading the masters. One of her best-known quotes, I am no longer afraid of storms, for I am learning how to sail my own ship. And now, our story. My Red Cap It was under a blue cap that I first saw the honest face of Joe Collins. In the third year of the late war, a Maine regiment was passing through Boston, on its way to Washington. The common was all alive with troops and the spectators who clustered round them to say Godspeed as the brave fellows marched away to meet danger and death for our sakes. Everyone was eager to do something, and, as the men stood at ease, the people mingled freely with them, offering gifts and hopeful prophecies of victory in the end. Irresistibly attracted, she writes, my boy Tom and I drew near, and soon, becoming excited by the scene, ravaged the fruit stands in our neighborhood for tokens of our regard, mingling candy and congratulations, peanuts and prayers, apples and applause, in one enthusiastic jumble. While Tom was off on his third raid, my attention was attracted by a man who stood a little apart, looking as if his thoughts were far away. All the men were fine, stalwart fellows, as mean men usually are, but this one overtopped his comrades, standing straight and tall as a Norway pine, with a face full of mingled shrewdness, sobriety, and self-possession of the typical New Englander. I liked the look of him, and seeing that he seemed solitary, even in the crowd, I offered him my last apple with a word of interest. The keen blue eyes met mine gratefully, and the apple began to vanish in vigorous bites as we talked, for no one thought of ceremony at such a time. "'Where are you from?' Whirlich, ma'am. Are you glad to go? Well, there's two sides to that question. I calculate to do my duty, and I'll do it hearty. But it is rough on a fella leaving his folks. For good, maybe. There was a sudden huskiness in the man's voice that was not Appleskin's, though he tried to make believe that it was. I knew a word about home would comfort him, so I went on with my questions. It is very hard. Do you leave a family? My old mother, a sick brother, and Lucindy. The last word was uttered in a tone of intense regret, and his brown cheek reddened as he added hastily to hide some embarrassment. You see, Jim went last year, and I got pretty well used up, so I felt as if I ought to take my turn now. Mother was a regular old hero about it, and I dropped everything and come off. Lucindy didn't think it was my duty, and made it awful hard, I tell you. Wives are less patriotic than mothers. I began, but he would not hear Lucindy blamed, and said quickly, She ain't my wife yet, but we calculated to be married in a month or so, and it was worse for her than me. Women lot so on not being disappointed. I couldn't shirk, and here I be. When I get to work, I shall be all right. The first wrench is the trying part. 
Here he straightened his broad shoulders and turned his face toward the flags fluttering far in front, as if no backward look should betray the longing of his heart for mother, home, and wife. I liked that little glimpse of character, and when Tom returned with empty hands, reporting that every stall was exhausted, I told him to find out what the man would like best, then run across the street and get it. I know without asking. Give us your purse and I'll make him as happy as a king, said the boy, laughing, as he looked up admiringly at our tall friend, who looked down on him with an elder brotherly air pleasant to see. While Tom was gone, I found out Joe's name and business, promised to write and tell his mother how finally the regiment went off, and was just expressing a hope that we might meet again, for I too was going to the war as a nurse, she writes, when the order to fall in came rolling down the ranks, and the talk was over. Fearing Tom would miss our man in the confusion, I kept my eye on him till the boy came rushing up with a packet of tobacco in one hand and a good supply of cigars in the other. Not a romantic offering, certainly, but a very acceptable one, as Joe's face proved, as we scrambled these treasures into his pockets, all laughing at the flurry, while less fortunate comrades helped us, with an eye to a share of these fragrant luxuries by and by. There was just time for this, a hearty shake of the big hand, and a grateful, Goodbye, ma'am. Then the word was given, and they were off. Bent on seeing the last of them, Tom and I took a short cut, and came out on the wide street down which so many troops marched that year. And, mounting some high steps, we watched for our man, as we already called him. As the inspiring music, the grand tramp, drew near, the old thrill went through the crowd. The old cheer broke out. But it was a different scene now than in the first enthusiastic, hopeful days. Young men and ardent boys filled the ranks then, brave by instinct, burning with loyal zeal, and blissfully unconscious of all that lay before them. Now the blue coats were worn by mature men, some gray, all grave and resolute, husbands and fathers with the memory of wives and children tugging at their heartstrings, homes left desolate behind them, and before them the grim certainty of danger, hardship, and perhaps the lifelong helplessness worse than death. Little of the glamour of romance about the war now, they saw it as it was, a long, hard task, and here were the men to do it well. Even the lookers-on were different now. Once all was wild enthusiasm and glad uproar. Now men's lips were set, and women smileless as they cheered. Fewer handkerchiefs whitened the air, for what eyes needed them. And sudden lulls, almost solemn in their stillness, followed the acclamations of the crowd. All watched with quickened breath and brave souls, that living wave, blue below, and bright with steely glitter above, as it flowed down the street and away to distant battlefields already stained with precious blood. There he is, the outside man and tallest of the lot. Give him a cheer, Auntie. He sees us and remembers, cried Tom, nearly tumbling off his perch as he waved his hat and pointed out Joe Collins. Yes, there he was, looking up with a smile on his brave brown face. My little nosegay in his buttonhole, a suspicious bulge in the pocket close by, and doubtless a comfortable quid in his mouth to cheer the weary march. How like an old friend he looked, though we'd only met fifteen minutes ago. How glad we were to be there to smile back at him and send him on his way, feeling that, even in a strange city, there was someone to say, God bless you, Joe. 
we watched the tallest blue cap till it vanished, and then went home in a glow of patriotism. Tom, to long for his turn to come, I to sew vigorously, she writes, on the gray gown the new nurse burned to wear as soon as possible, and both of us to think and speak often of poor Joe Collins and his Lucindy. All this happened long ago, but it is well to recall those stirring times, to keep fresh the memory of sacrifices made for us by men like these, to see to it that the debt we owe them is honesty, gladly paid, and, while we decorate the graves, to see to it that the debt we owe them is honestly, gladly paid, and, while we decorate the graves of those who died, to remember also those who still live to deserve our grateful care. I never expected to see Joe again, but six months later we did meet in a Washington hospital one winter's night. A train of ambulances had left their sad freight at our door, and we were hurrying to get the poor fellows into much-needed beds after a week of hunger, cold, and unavoidable neglect. All forms of pain were in my ward that night, and all borne with the pathetic patience which was a daily marvel to those who saw it. Trying to bring order out of chaos, I was rushing up and down the narrow aisle between the rows of rapidly filling beds, and after brushing several times against a pair of the largest and muddiest boots I ever saw, I paused at last to inquire why they were impeding the passageway. I found they belonged to a very tall man who seemed to be already asleep, or dead, so white and still and utterly worn out he looked as he lay there, without a coat, a great patch on his forehead, and the right arm rudely bundled up. Stooping to cover him, I saw that he was unconscious, and, whipping out my brandy bottle and salts, soon brought him round, for it was only exhaustion. "'Can you eat?' I asked, as he said, "'Thank you, ma'am,' after a long drought of water and a dizzy stare. "'Eat? I'm starving,' he answered, with such a ravenous glance at a fat nurse who happened to be passing, that I trembled for her, and hastened to take a bowl of soup from her tray. As I fed him, his gaunt, weather-beaten face had a familiar look, but so many such faces had passed before me that winter, I did not recall this one till the ward master came to put up the cards with the newcomers' names above their beds. My man seemed absorbed in his food, but I naturally glanced at the card, and there was the name Joseph Collins to give me an additional interest in my new patient. "'Why, Joe, is it really you?' I exclaimed, pouring the last spoonful of soup down his throat so hastily that I choked him. <coughs> "'All that's left of me. Wow, ain't this luck now?' gasped Joe as gratefully as if that hospital cot was a bed of roses. "'What's the matter, a wound in the head and arm?' I asked, feeling sure that no slight affliction had brought Joe there. "'Right arm gone. Shot off as slick as a whistle. I tell you, it's a singular kind of feeling to see a piece of your own body go flying away with no prospect of ever coming back again,' said Joe, trying to make light of one of the greatest misfortunes a man can suffer. "'That is bad, but it might have been worse. Keep up your spirits, Joe, and we will soon have you fitted out with a new arm almost as good as new.' "'I guess it won't do much lumbering, so that trade is done for. "'I suppose there's things left-handed fellows can do, "'and I must learn them as soon as possible, since my fighting days are over.' "'And Joe looked at his one arm with a sigh. "'It was almost a groan. 
If you could just drop a line to Mother to let her know I'm alive, it would be a sight of comfort to both of us. I guess I'm in for a long spell of hospital, and I'd lay easier if I knew Mother and Lucindy wasn't fretting about me. He must have been suffering terribly, but he thought of the women who loved him before himself, and busy as I was, I snatched a moment to send a few words of hope to the old mother. Then I left him laying easy, though the prospect of some months of wearing pain would have daunted most men. If I had needed anything to increase my regard for Joe, it would have been the courage with which he bore a very bad quarter of an hour with the surgeons, for his arm was in a dangerous state the wound in the head feverish for want of care, and a heavy cold on the lungs suggested pneumonia as an added trial to his list of ills. He will have a hard time of it, but I think he will pull through, as he is a temperate fellow with a splendid constitution, was the doctor's verdict as he left us for the next man, who was past help, with a bullet through his lungs. I don't know as I hanker to live and be a burden. If Jim was able to do for mother... I feel as if I wouldn't mind stepping out now so far along. As he ain't, I suppose I must brace up and do the best I can, said Joe as I wiped the drops from his forehead and tried to look as if his prospect was a bright one. You will have Lucindy to help you, you know, and that'll make things easier for all. Think so? Appears to me I couldn't ask her to take care of three invalids for my sake. She ain't no folks of her own, nor much means and ought to marry a man who can make things easy for her. Guess I'll have to wait a spell longer before I say anything to Lucindy about marrying now. And a look of resolute resignation settled on Joe's haggard face as he gave up his dearest hope. I think Lucindy will have something to say if she's like most women, and you'll find the burdens much lighter by sharing them between you. Don't worry about that, but get well and go home as soon as you can. Well, all right, ma'am. And Joe proved himself a good soldier by obeying orders and falling asleep like a tired child as the first step toward recovery. For two months I saw Joe daily and learned to like him very much. He was so honest, genuine, and kind-hearted. So did his mates, for he made friends with them all by sharing such small luxuries as came to him, for he was a favorite. And better still, he made sunshine in that sad place by the brave patience with which he bore his own troubles, the cheerful consolation he always gave to others. A droll fellow was Joe at times, for under his sobriety lay much humor, and I soon discovered that a visit from him was more efficacious than other cordials in cases of despondency and discontent. Roars of laughter sometimes greeted me as I went into his ward, and Joe's jokes were passed round as eagerly as the water pitcher. Yet he had much to try him, not only in the ills that vexed his flesh, but the cares that tried his spirit, and the future that lay before him, full of anxieties and responsibilities, which seemed so heavy now, when the strong right arm, that had cleared all obstacles away before, was gone. The letters I wrote for him, and those he received, told the little story very plainly, for he read them to me, and found much comfort in talking over his affairs, as most men do, when illness makes them dependent on a woman. Jim was evidently sick and selfish. Lucindy, to judge from the photograph cherished so tenderly under Joe's pillow, was a pretty, weak sort of a girl, with little character or courage to help poor Joe with his burdens. The old mother was very like her son, and stood by him like a hero, as he said, but she was evidently failing, and begged him to come home, 
as soon as he was able, that she might see him comfortably settled before she must leave him. Her courage sustained his, and the longing to see her hastened his departure as soon as it was safe to let him go, for Lucindy's letters were always of a dismal sort and made him anxious to put his shoulder to the wheel. She always set considerable by me, mother did, being the oldest, and I wouldn't miss making her last days happy, not if it cost me all the arms and legs I've got said joe as he awkwardly struggled into the big boots an hour after leave to go home was given him it was pleasant to see his comrades gather round him with such hearty adieus that his one hand must have tingled to hear the good wishes and the thanks called after him by pale creatures in their beds and to find tears in many eyes besides my own when he was gone and nothing was left of him but the empty cot the old gray wrapper and the name upon the wall I kept that card among my other relics and hoped to meet Joe again somewhere in the world. He sent me one or two letters. Then I went home. The war ended soon after. Time passed, and the little story of my mean lumberman was laid away with many other experiences, which made that part of my life a very memorable one. Writes Miss Alcott as we approach Part 3. Some years later, as I looked out of my window one dull November day, the only cheerful thing I saw was the red cap of a messenger who was examining the slate that hung on a wall opposite my hotel. A tall man with gray hair and beard, one arm, and a blue army coat. I always salute, figuratively at least, when I see that familiar blue, especially if one sleeve of the coat is empty. So I watched the messenger with interest as he trudged away on some new errand, wishing he had a better day and a thicker pair of boots. He was an unusually large, well-made man, and reminded me of a fine building going to ruin before its time. For the broad shoulders were bent. There was a stiffness about the long legs suggestive of wounds or rheumatism, and the curly hair looked as if snow had fallen on it too soon. Sitting at work in my window, I fell into the way of watching my red cap, as I called him, with more interest than I did the fat doves on the roof opposite or the pert sparrows hopping in the mud below. I liked the steady way in which he plodded on through fair weather or foul, as if intent on doing well the one small service he had found to do. I liked his cheerful whistle as he stood waiting for a job under the porch of the public building where his slate hung, watching the luxurious carriages roll by, and the well-to-do gentlemen who daily passed him on the way to their comfortable homes, with a steady, patient sort of face, as if wondering at the inequalities of fortune, yet neither melancholy nor morose over the small share of prosperity which had fallen to his lot. I often planned to give him a job, that I might see him nearer, but I had few errands, and little Bob the hall boy depended on doing those, so the winter was nearly over before I found out that my red cap was an old friend. A parcel came for me one day, and bidding the man wait for an answer, I sat down to write it, while the messenger stood just inside the door like a sentinel on duty. When I looked up to give my note and directions, I found the man staring at me with a beaming yet bashful face as he nodded, saying heartily, I mistrusted it was you, ma'am. Soon as I see the name on the bundle, I guess I ain't wrong. It's a number of years since we met, and you don't remember Joe Collins as well as he does you, I reckon. Why have you, why, how you have changed... I've been seeing you every day all winter and never knew you. 
I said, shaking hands with my old patient, and very glad to see him. Nigh on to twenty years makes considerable a change in folks, especially if they have a pretty hard road to hoe. How are they all at home? How are they all? How are they all at home? I asked as he sat turning his cap round, not quite knowing where to begin. I haven't got any home, the folks neither. And the melancholy words banished the brightness from his rough face like a cloud. Mother died soon after I got back, sudden. "'But she was ready, and I was there, so she was happy. "'Jim lived a number of years, and he was a sight of care, poor fellow, "'but we managed to rub along, though we had to sell the farm, "'for I couldn't do much with one arm, "'and doctor's bills right along steady take a heap of money. "'He was as comfortable as he could be, "'and when he was gone, it wasn't no great matter, "'for there was only me, and I don't mind roughing it. "'But Lucindy, where was she?' I asked very naturally. "'Oh!' She married another man long ago. Couldn't expect her to take me and my misfortune. She's doing well, I hear, and that's a comfort anyway. There was a look on Joe's face, a tone in Joe's voice as he spoke, that plainly showed how much he had needed comfort when left to bear his misfortunes all alone. But he made no complaint, uttered no reproach, and loyally excused Lucindy's desertion with a simple sort of dignity that made it impossible to express pity or condemnation. "'How came you here, Joe?' I asked, making a sudden leap from past to present. "'I had to scratch for a living, and I can't do much. "'So after trying a number of things, I found this. "'My old wounds pester me a good deal, and rheumatism is bad winters. "'But while my legs hold out, I can get on. "'A man can't get down and starve, so I kept wagging as long as I can. "'When I can't do no more, I suppose there's an almshouse and a hospital ready for me. "'That is a dismal prospect, Joe. "'There ought to be a comfortable place "'for such as you to spend your last days. "'I am sure you have earned it. "'Well, it does seem rather hard on us "'when we give all we had, "'and give it free and hearty, "'to be left to knock about in our old age. "'But there's so many poor folks to be took care of, "'we don't get much of a chance. "'But we ain't the begging sort,' said Joe, "'with a wistful look at the wintry world outside.' as if it would be better to be quiet under the snow than to drag out his last painful years, friendless and forgotten, in some refuge of the poor. Some kind people have been talking of a home for soldiers, and I hope the plan will be carried out. It'll take time, but if it comes to pass, you shall be one of the first men to enter that home, Joe, if I can get you there. That sounds mighty cheering and comfortable. Thank you, ma'am. Idleness is dreadful trying to me, and I'd rather wear out than rust out, so I guess I can weather it a spell longer. But it'll be pleasant to look forward to a snug harbor by and by. I feel a sight better just hear and tell about it. He certainly looked so, faint as the hope was, for the melancholy eyes brightened as if they already saw a happier refuge in the future than almshouse, hospital, or grave. And when he trudged away upon my errand, he went as briskly as if every step took him nearer to the promised home. After that day it was all up with Bob, for I told my neighbors Joe's story, and we kept him trotting busily, adding little gifts and taking the sort of interest in him that comforted the lonely fellow, and made him feel that he had not outlived his usefulness. I never looked out when he was at his post that he did not smile back at me. I never passed him in the street that the red cap was not touched with a military flourish. And when any of us beckoned to him, 
No twinge of rheumatism was too sharp to keep him from hurrying to do our errands, as if he had Mercury's winged feet. Now and then he came in for a chat, and always asked how the soldier's home was prospering, expressing his opinion that Boston was the charitablest city under the sun, and he was sure he and his mates would be took care of somehow. When we parted in the spring, I told him things looked hopeful, bade him be ready for a good long rest as soon as the hospital doors were open, and left him nodding cheerfully. But in the autumn, I looked in vain for Joe. His slate was in its old place, and a messenger came and went on his beat. But a strange face was under the red cap, and this man had two arms and one eye. I asked for Collins, but the newcomer had only a vague idea that he was dead, and the same answer was given me at headquarters, though none of the busy people seemed to know when or where he died. So I mourned for Joe, and felt that it was very hard he could not have lived to enjoy the promised refuge, for, relying upon the charity that never fails, the home was an actual fact now, just beginning its beneficent career. People were waking up to this duty, money was coming in, meetings were being held, and already a few poor fellows were in the refuge, feeling themselves no longer paupers, but invalid soldiers honorably supported by the state they had served. Talking it over one day with a friend who spent her life working for the Associated Charities, she said, By the way, there's a man boarding with one of my poor women who ought to be got into the home if he will go. I don't know much about him except that he was in the army, has been very ill with rheumatic fever, and is friendless. I asked Mrs. Flanagan how she managed to keep him, and she said she had help while he was sick, and now he is able to hobble about. He takes care of the children and she is able to go out to work. He won't go to his own town, because there's nothing for him there but the almshouse, and he dreads a hospital, so struggles along, trying to earn his bread tending babies with his one arm. A sad case, and in your line, I wish you'd look into it. That sounds like my Joe, one arm and all. I'll go and see him. I've a weakness for soldiers, sick or well. I went, and never shall forget the pathetic little tableau I saw as I opened Mrs. Flanagan's dingy door, for she was out, and no one heard my tap. The room was redolent of suds, and in a grove of damp clothes hung on lines sat a man with a crying baby laid across his lap, while he fed three small children standing at his knee with bread and molasses. How he managed with one arm to keep the baby from squirming onto the floor, the plate from upsetting, and to feed the hungry urchins who stood in a row with open mouths like young birds was past my comprehension. But he did, trotting baby gently, dealing out sweet morsels patiently, and whistling to himself as if to beguile his labors cheerfully. The broad back, the long legs, the faded coat, the low whistle were all familiar, and dodging a wet sheet, I faced the man to find it was indeed my Joe a mere shadow of his former self, after months of suffering that had crippled him for life, but brave and patient still, trying to help himself and not ask aid, though brought so low. For an instant I could not speak to him, and encumbered with baby, dish, spoon, and children, he could only stare at me with a sudden brightening of an altered face that made it full of welcome, before a word was uttered. There ain't much left to me but bones and pain, ma'am. I'm powerful glad to see you all the same. 
"'Dust off a chair, Patsy, and let the lady set down,' said Joe, disbanding his small troop and shouldering the baby as if presenting arms in honor of his guest. "'Why didn't you let me know how sick you were, and how came they to think you were dead?' I asked as he festooned the wet linen out of the way and prepared to enjoy himself as best he could. I did send once, when things was at the worst, but you hadn't got back, and then somehow I thought I was going to be mustered out for good, and so wouldn't trouble nobody. But my orders ain't come yet, and I am doing the first thing that come along. It ain't much, but the good soul stood by me, and I ain't ashamed to pay my debts this way, since I can't do it in no other, said Joe, cradling the chubby baby in his one arm as tenderly as if it had been his own, although little Biddy was not an inviting infant. That is very beautiful and right, Joe, and I honor you for it, but you were not meant to tend babies, so sing your last lullabies and be ready to go to the home as soon as I can get you there. Really, ma'am? I used to lay and kind of dream about it when I couldn't stir without yelling out but I never thought it would ever come to happen. I see a piece in the paper describing it, and it sounded dreadful nice. Shouldn't wonder if I found some of my mates there. They were a good lot, and deserving of all that could be done for them, said Joe, trotting the baby briskly, as if the prospect excited him, as well it might, for the change from that damp nursery to the comfortable quarters prepared for him would be like going from purgatory to paradise. I don't wonder you don't get well living in such a place, Joe. You should have gone home to Woolwich and let your friends help you, I said, feeling provoked with him for hiding himself. No, ma'am, he answered with a look I shall never forget. It was so full of mingled patience, pride, and pain. I haven't a relation in the world but a couple of poor old aunts, and they couldn't do anything for me. As for asking help for folks I used to know, I couldn't do it. And if you think I'd go to Lucinda, though she is well off, you don't know Joe Collins. I'd die first. If she was poor and I rich, I'd do for her like a brother. But I couldn't ask no favors of her. Not if I begged my vittles in the street or starved. I forgive, but I don't forget in a hurry. And the woman that stood by me when I was down is the woman I believe in and can take my bread from without shame. Hooray for Biddy Flanagan! God bless her! And, as if to find a vent for the emotion that filled his eyes with grateful tears, Joe let off the cheer, which the children shrilly echoed, and I joined heartily. I shall come for you in a few days, so cuddle the baby and make much of the children before you part. It won't take you long to pack up, will it? I asked, as we subsided with a general laugh. I reckon not, as I don't own any clothes but what I set in except a couple of old shirts and them socks. My hat's stopping up the window, and my old coat is my bed cover. I'm awful shabby, ma'am, and that's one reason I don't go out more. I can hobble some, but I ain't got used to being a scarecrow yet. And Joe glanced from the hose without heels that hung on the line to the ragged suit he wore, with a resigned expression that made me long to rush out and buy up half the contents of Oak Hall on the spot. Curbing this wild impulse, I presently departed with promises of speedy transportation for Joe and unlimited oranges to assuage the pangs of parting for the young Flanagans, who escorted me to the door while Joe waved the baby like a triumphal banner till I got round the corner. 
There was such a beautiful absence of red tape about the new institution that it only needed a word in the right ear to set things going. And then, with a long pull, a strong pull, and a pull all together, Joe Collins was taken up and safely landed in the home he so much needed and so well deserved. A happier man or a more grateful one it would be hard to find. And if a visitor wants an enthusiastic guide about the place, Joe is the one to take for all his comfort, sunshine, and goodwill to him. And he unconsciously shows how great the need of this refuge is as he hobbles about on his lame feet, pointing out its beauties, conveniences, and delights with his one arm while his face shines and his voice quavers a little as he says gratefully, The state don't forget us, you see, and this is a home worth having. Long life to it. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. We're part of the 1001 Stories Podcast Network that also includes 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. All of our episodes for both shows are available at www.1001storiespodcast.com. And we invite you to subscribe to our shows at iTunes or podbay.fm or stitcher.com if you have an Android phone. When you subscribe, which, remember, is free anywhere you find us, you'll be notified every time we launch a new episode, which is weekly for both shows. Our shows make a great companion when you're traveling, working around the yard and home, or commuting to and from work. Thank you very much for listening. Until next time, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. <laughs>